Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got a two-part show today, with both segments focusing on this week's decision by the Facebook Oversight Board on Donald Trump's account. Before we get into it, let me remind you what happened this week. On Wednesday, the Facebook Oversight Board decided to uphold Facebook's suspension of former President Donald Trump, who was suspended from the platform hours after inciting a violent insurrection at the United States Capitol on January 6th, with the goal of interrupting the certification of electoral college votes that sealed his defeat in the 2020 presidential election. But the Oversight Board did not rule definitively. Instead, it found that it, quote, was not appropriate for Facebook to impose the indeterminate and standardless penalty of indefinite suspension, unquote, since, quote, Facebook's normal penalties include removing the violating content, imposing a time-bound period of suspension, or permanently disabling the page and account, unquote. So the board insisted that Facebook should review this matter to determine and justify a proportionate response consistent with rules that are applied to other users of its platform. And it said that it's not permissible for Facebook to keep a user off the platform for an undefined period with no criteria for when or whether the account will be restored. Trump was banned after he posted statements in support of the insurrectionists on January 6th. The day on which five people died and hundreds were injured in a bloody fight that saw a noose hung in front of the Capitol, Trump posted a statement to Facebook saying that his supporters should, quote, remember this day forever, and that, quote, these are the things and events that happened when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. The Oversight Board said that two posts by Trump on January 6th violated Facebook's community standards and Instagram's community guidelines, in particular, quote, rules prohibiting praise or support of people engaged in violence. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg at the time had noted that the restrictions on Trump's account related to the heightened risk of violence or disruption during the transition period. The board agreed. The Oversight Board characterized the statement from the former president, which was submitted on his behalf by the American Center for Law and Justice and a page administrator. The statement argued falsely that, quote, it is stunningly clear that in this speech there was no call to insurrection, no incitement to violence, and no threat to public safety in any manner, unquote. It also said that there was, quote, total absence of any serious linkage between the Trump speech and the Capitol building incursion, and that outside forces were responsible for the violence that day. Interestingly, the Oversight Board claims it sent 46 questions to Facebook, and that in reply, Facebook did not answer seven of them entirely and two partially. The Oversight Board decision says, quote, the questions that Facebook did not answer included questions about how Facebook's news feed and other features impacted the visibility of Trump's content, whether Facebook has researched or plans to research those design decisions in relation to the events of January 6, 2021, and information about violating content from followers of Mr. Trump's accounts. A minority of the Oversight Board sought to require that, quote, before Mr. Trump's account can be restored, Facebook must also aim to ensure the withdrawal of praise or support for those involved in the riots. The Oversight Board made additional policy recommendations to Facebook, including hiring some specialized staff to deal with influential user accounts, 
clarifications of the company's newsworthiness policy that permits political leaders and other influential accounts to evade some enforcement of Facebook's policies due to their status, and that Facebook should undertake a comprehensive review of its own contribution to the narrative of electoral fraud and the tensions that culminated in the violence in the United States on January 6th. To learn more about the decision, we're first going to hear a panel discussion hosted by Stanford Cyber Policy Center and moderated by Stanford Law Professor Nate Persily. The panel features two members of the Facebook Oversight Board, Michael McConnell, Director of the Stanford Constitutional Law Center, and Julia Wano, an international human rights lawyer. The others in the panel include Maricha Shaiki, International Director of Policy at Stanford Cyber Policy Center and International Policy Fellow at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, Renee DeResta, Research Manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory, Alex Stamos, a professor at the Center for International Security and Cooperation and former Chief Security Officer at Facebook, and Daphne Keller, who directs the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. Here's Nate Persley. Uh, I'm Nate Persley. I'm a law professor here at Stanford and director of the Cyber Policy Center. Uh, welcome, everyone, to our discussion today on the uh, Facebook Oversight Board's decision on uh, the takedown of uh, President Donald Trump's account. We have an all-star panel uh, here today. We are particularly thankful that two members of the Oversight Board have uh, decided to join us today, uh, our Stanford colleague uh, and former judge, uh, Michael McConnell. Uh, and Julie Awono, uh, who uh, is, is actually here in California, but uh, is, is leader of the Paris-based uh, group Internet Sans Frontiers and is a, a, a lawyer and, and human rights expert as well. Uh, joining me on the Stanford side, we have our all-star team at the Cyber Policy Center, uh, Rene DeResta uh, and Alex Stamos, who uh, both work and lead the uh, Center's uh, Internet Observatory, the Stanford Internet Observatory, uh, Maricha Shake, who is uh, uh, the International Policy Fellow both for the Human Centered AI Program and uh, Policy Director here at the Cyber Policy Center and former member of the European Parliament. And we are particularly thankful that she's joining us in the wee hours of the night from Amsterdam. And uh, joining us in a few minutes will be uh, Daphne Keller, who leads the program on platform governance uh, here at the Cyber Policy Center. I thought what we would do is just start with a bit of a lightning round from the speakers on this uh, decision that came down yesterday. And then I have, this will mainly be a discussion uh, between our panelists. Just to level set for those who, who haven't been following this decision and, and the environment surrounding it, um, the Facebook uh, Oversight Board, uh, which was created Roughly a year ago, I guess, um, uh, from with with appointees from drawn from legal academia, human rights uh, organizations, journalism, and the like, has issued about ten decisions before this most recent and notable one yesterday concerning the account of President Trump, which was suspended uh, on January 6th after content that he posted there uh, relating to the insurrection in the Capitol. Um, the Oversight Board upheld Facebook's decision to uh, take down the account, but in effect remanded it to Facebook in saying that the indefinite suspension that um, Facebook had uh, imposed on President Trump's account would be 
uh, you know, you should be reevaluated, was inconsistent with the values in the charter of the oversight board and as well as international human rights law. And so within six months, Facebook has to come back with um, a, a better explanation as to why the emergency conditions that existed at the time of the takedown of President Trump's account uh, still exist uh, and justify the continued suspension. In addition, the board uh, articulated other kind of advice with respect to uh, global leaders around the world and how uh, account takedown should uh, function. I, I, there's a lot more to say about the decision, uh, and, and we will here today, but I thought I would start with the two members of the Oversight Board to get their perspectives. We're now uh, over 24 hours into the news cycle since um, the decision came down, and so which is a lifetime in, in internet years. Uh, I thought, Michael, I'll, I'll start with you uh, and just ask you what uh, sort of uh, now that we've sort of gone through the initial stages of commentary and, and, and reflection on this, what would you like people to know either about the board or about the decision itself uh, that, that people maybe are not um, aware of? So, uh, you know, I've only been able to read a small fraction of the coverage and commentary, but uh, I'm really struck by one thing, which is how uh, everyone sees in it not what they want to see, but actually sort of what they don't want to see. It's, it's the opposite of what you would expect from human nature. Everyone seems to treat, or not everyone, but you know, a large part of the coverage and commentary uh, sees you know, one half of it, and it's the half that they disapprove of. Uh, but in fact, there's a, there's a lot in this opinion that I think uh, both sides of the political spectrum should uh, can, can welcome. I think there's something in this for uh, for both sides, and I also think, and I think this has not gotten enough uh, attention, uh, that from the point of view of the general public, in the interest of you know procedural regularity, clarity, transparency, fairness, uh, that there's something here for everybody, uh, in that it corrects. Uh, and tries to push uh, Facebook in the direction of being a little less uh, arbitrary and a little clearer and uh, in, in when it makes important decisions. Julie, what would you add to that? Um, and and is, is giving something to everyone necessarily, is, is that an indication of, of the rightness of the opinion here? What, what should we take from that? No, we, we didn't uh, guide our deliberations and, and decision in uh, looking at, you know, what people would like, doing that would have been very challenging. Instead, what we, what we think uh, is important to highlight here is that anyone who is concerned about what happened on January the 6th and anyone who is, in, who is concerned, sorry, about Mark Zuckerberg's power and his company's power over our, our, our speech online should actually praise this decision because it refused, the board refused to endorse an arbitrary suspension. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing that I think is important here is uh, we're we hearing that, yes, we, we, we threw, I mean, we put the baby back to Facebook basically uh, without telling it what it should do. Actually, we did give quite clear guidelines on uh, how it should apply uh, international human rights standards and law when re-examining the case of the former President Trump. So when re-examining whether, whether or not uh, it should apply, I mean, what penalty it should apply, whether it should 
bring it bring him back on or uh, definitely suspend him. I mean, definitely in terms of setting a date or uh, permanently disable the account. What we told Facebook is that the company should take into account the severity of the violations that happened on January the 6th, but also should take into consideration the potential for future harms. And uh, this is actually the first time that we went talking publicly with a company like Facebook about uh, what influential users, how influential users are using those uh, those incredible platforms to speak to their audience and audiences, sorry, and beyond. Uh, it's the first time that we're actually talking about potential for future arms. Uh, and the last thing that I think is important here is uh, the message from the board that all users matter and that it's not because you are uh, a head of state that you have more rights than others to spew hateful, hateful content, fake content, uh, and you will not be punished for that, uh, for instance, because you know what you say is newsworthy. Uh, on the contrary, what we are telling uh, is that, yes, users, normal users, they have rights, of course, but also because they are influential, uh, they have more responsibility uh, to protect public safety and to, to assess whether or not uh, they use their influence in order not to protect public safety. We encouraged uh, Facebook to look at guidance that exists out there, including guidance uh, on the rabbit plan of action against hate that was uh, adopted in the framework of the United Nations. And that gives clear inf indications uh, with regards to context what you should look at when you're trying to, well, basically delete hate uh, from, from writing, from publications or from social media platforms. I think these are, I would say, my main takeaway. I want, I want to turn to the, the rest of the folks, but let me, let me just ask this question just for clarification's sake. So suppose on Facebook and I get this decision, um, what evidence on the ground would I need to marshal in order to either justify the suspension or not justify the suspension? Is it that, um, you know, presumably you all agreed that January 6th, that the evidence existed there because that's why you uphold the suspension. But did the U.S. need, how do we know whether the clear and present danger that existed and which you all agreed justifies the account suspension, when will we know if that that disappears? Because in many respects, we didn't really know that on January 5th. It's only because of what happened on January 6th. So, so what, what should Facebook do in kind of response to this? How are they supposed to articulate the, the rationale for why the danger that existed on January 6th has actually dissipated? One thing that I, that I think is interesting is that we've made some recommendations with regards to that precisely. Uh, currently, Facebook doesn't have any community standards or, or policies that clearly deals with emergency situations. Uh, these are not, this is not science fiction. You know, the case of the Capitol riots uh, is something that probably could have had happened or has happened in other, with other extents uh, elsewhere in the world. And that's precisely what we're telling the company that it should be prepared, but to be prepared, uh, we need rules that are clear, uh, that are transparent and that can, you know, that through which we can hold the company uh, accountable. Michael, I mean, you're teaching First Amendment law right now uh, here at Stanford. What, what would you say uh, to that point? I think the, the one of the important things here is that we did not try to prejudge what that decision is going to be. 
Now you're asking what kinds of evidence uh, uh, to look at. I think we don't know what six months from now, you know, what are going to be the circumstances, uh, but our decision requires a forward-looking uh, examination. Uh, and by then we'll know a lot of things. We, uh, the, the dangers that presented themselves on January 6th and January 7th were an interaction between uh, Mr. Trump's uh, tweets and various, uh, I mean, using the term terminology of the Facebook community standard that was applied, you know, dangerous individuals and organizations uh, who were in fact organizing uh, the, uh, the events in Washington, they didn't come about as a spontaneous matter of responding immediately to um, uh, Mr. Trump or anyone else. They were planned in advance. And uh, Mr. Trump's Facebook and other uh, communications were an important part of that. But we'll presumably six months from now, we'll know whether that kind of activity is continuing. We will know what kinds of uh, of messages that Mr. Trump is uh, is now communicating to the nation. He just started his new uh, social media. It's a it's not really a platform, a, a a vehicle for his communication. So it's not as if we won't know what sorts of preoccupations uh, that he has. We also know and some things about what are the dangers, what are the particular dangers that come from uh, leaders who. Uh, post uh, material and we'll be able and Facebook will be able to uh, look to that. We didn't, we, the board did not specify what kind of evidence uh, that will be Facebook's job. And then in the event that it comes back to the board, we may have a, another opportunity to, uh, to, to cogitate about all of this. But the main thing is that they need to have to evaluate this in light of the severity of the conduct and the forward looking question of potential uh, harm. Great. Well, now, Alec, you used to be head of security at Facebook. Uh, you've read this opinion now. I guess put put on both your Facebook hat and then also your your hat as head of the Internet Observatory, having issued the uh, report of the election. You and Renee and 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 your three other partners, the report of the Election Integrity Partnership on disinformation uh, in the 2020 election. What what how, what do you make of the decision? Um, both you know, wearing your former hat and your current one. Yeah, so I no longer have a Facebook hat, but. Um... Yeah. So uh, first off, uh, thank you, Mike and Julie, so much uh, for coming today. I, I guess I have thoughts on the meta issue of the oversight board and then the decision itself. So on the meta issue, there's a lot of uh, cynicism and sarcasm in the discussion of, among kind of the tech skeptical press and such, what you might call kind of the the cool kids club of where it's, it's always, there's always uh, an upside to kind of taking anything cynically, right? And, and not believing that there's anything positive that can come out of Anything and um, you know, people talk about like the board is just a a, a fig leaf and a planted stuff. So I, I gave a speech like three years ago when I left Facebook and I talked about like some of the fundamental problems. And three of the fundamental problems I talked about was one that there is no kind of transparency in the decisions that the company made. Two that there is no kind of predictability in the decisions that were made. And three that people the people making the decisions were were too close to the people whose job it was to keep the company on the right side of government. Right, that the the policy team 
that does this work also reports to the same person whose job is government affairs. And that that was like a fundamental weakness in kind of Facebook policy. So on a meta issue, I think the oversight board actually addresses one of the reasons I like the existence is addresses those three issues, right? We have some transparency around why the decision was made as well as a forcing function of the the oversight board forcing transparency from the company on data issues and such that otherwise we wouldn't get. We have, you know, we're not quite there yet, but the outcome of this process is hopefully something that gives predictability that we can have, you know, in the same way that court systems have precedent that can be applied, it can be assumed to be applicable, that will have that out of, out of this rulemaking process. And the oversight board obviously does not care at all about what Donald Trump thinks about Facebook, right? Um, and other world leaders. So I think like from a meta issue, I am glad that this is happening. And I think there's a lot of people who are, it's like, it's fun to be cynical, but then they don't have any better idea. And the truth is, is if you're going to, you know, a lot of these problems are the emergent problems of allowing strangers to talk to one another. You will always have to have rules that, that, are mediating this kind of behavior. And those rules are gonna have to be created or at least uh, looked at in some kind of mechanism. And this is out of all the horrible options, this seems to be the least bad option so far. So I I am glad to have seen this kind of process wise. On the decision itself, I I mean, I agree about keeping him down. I I signed an amicus brief, I guess uh, you would say, uh, along the 9,860 some other uh, comments that were supposed were talked about like, there's a good reason to to have a deference towards democratically elected leaders, but that deference should have a limit where those leaders are utilizing the platform to actually attack democracy itself. Um, So I, I, you know, this is the the kind of outcome I was actually hoping for and talked about publicly. I think I have kind of two questions and one, I have no problem. I don't think like the, they punted it because this is the process by which decisions have to be made inside the companies, right? Which is there's something that happens. You have to study it. You have to pull data out of it. And then you have to have like an iterative process where you talk about what kind of policies and then you have to test those against a variety of other situations to think about what the real world impact is. So the fact that that back and forth is now going to be at least partially public is a huge benefit because there's a bunch of other companies that just made a decision in the boardroom and haven't revisited at all and have kept their heads down. There's a certain video company that nobody, a video site that nobody ever talks about um, that still has Trump up, right? And, And so like the fact that there's some kind of back and forth invisibility transparency here, I think is actually a good thing. Um, but what I would like to see out of that back and forth is a couple of things. One, I did like the the use of the robot framing, uh, the kind of human rights six point test of like analyzing the speech. I think an, an interesting place for the reward to think about next is about that explicit trade-off between Facebook respecting the rights of people to choose who the democratic leaders are and not getting involved in democratic processes versus the possible abuse of the platform. And that was not very explicit. So I I would love to see more in the future conversations, kind of an explicit discussion, because this is this is a decision about Donald Trump, but really the people who really need to th- care about it are named Modi and Bolsonaro and the citizens of a variety of other democracies where Facebook is being used to cause harm currently by democratically elected leaders. And I think that needs to be a more explicitly discussed about that trade-off. And then the second kind of meta, I mean, the, the second thing I think the board needs to consider is this is under like a policy that is used on really exigent circumstances of like, there's an immediate possibility of violence. And in all of these situations where you have governments that are abusing Facebook, the vast majority of time, it's not like something's immediately going to happen or is happening at the moment. It is there's a slow buildup of abusive language that, and this is a history of Facebook. Like the one of the fundamental problems we had going into the 2016 election is the company didn't have 
good policies on content that from, was a borderline content where a single piece of content was not violating or had a, a the single piece of content would have an issue around who, who posted it, but it was collectively all the content together caused lots of harm, right? And so that's how we got the coordinated and authentic behavior policy and a bunch of other policies that came out of that. That, that needs to be part of the consideration here is that the vast majority of times that you're going to make even a judgment about a democratically elected leader, it's not going to be because they're saying rush the Capitol right now. It's going to be because they are lying and manipulating people in a way that maybe has really bad downstream harm, where, but where each piece of content is not as high of a bar. And I think that's what something I'd love to see explicitly kind of in, in the future decision. Renee, why don't you uh, pick up um, uh, on that, particularly in light of the, the study and work that you guys uh, did uh, over the last year on disinformation? Yeah, well, a lot of what we saw leading up to the events at the Capitol was it wasn't a one-off thing, per the point about that Alex just made at the end there about um, this is the, uh, you know, where the, the immediate incitement to violence that actually precipitated the takedown was not something that happened in a vacuum. It was something that was really built up over a very large period of time. And while some of the content had been uh, violating previously, ultimately it received maybe a label, a fact check sometimes, um, but it was really seen as something that should stay up because it was newsworthy. And the newsworthiness exemption, I think, which the Oversight Board did allude to in its decision, is interesting because in many ways it was, it's like an indemnification for the powerful, right? It says that if you were very, very powerful, um, your speech is inherently newsworthy. Ergo, it for some reason is, you know, it's, it receives a higher standard of um, protection, if you will, whereas a, a regular lowly person making the same comment would come down under the policy because they don't have the newsworthiness protection. So it's this interesting dynamic of the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, if, depending on who you are with that account, your speech is more or less uh, protected, which in, in many ways is the reverse, I would say, of, of how we should be thinking about this. And you did see the board kind of allude to that too. Uh, the idea that with great power should come great responsibility, should come more responsibility because you actually have the potential to incite in a meaningful way, whereas your inciting words will be, you have the potential to actually have them acted upon by your audience of millions, as opposed to you, the guy with 10 followers saying the same thing, and you know your 10 followers are not going to go storm the Capitol. So there was that. But one thing that we saw repeatedly during the election um, in the, the election integrity partnership work was the repeated um, the kind of ways in which the narrative built up over time such that you started to see actually people self-assembling around the same ideas. And that was a really interesting dynamic that I think Facebook alluded to in that document that was leaked this week. This was in our last week, I guess I should say now, uh, that BuzzFeed had where they articulate the fact that the claims that were made, the perpetual persistent delegitimization that violated their policies, but was allowed to stand under newsworthiness, presumably, that had the effect of leading people to believe a certain thing. And then those people sort of self-assembled and began to set up groups and things in response to this. And they made this very interesting comment in this leaked document that they didn't see it as a movement until it was too late. They saw it as individual isolated decisions, individual isolated creation of groups, when ultimately what was happening was responses to uh, this sort of perpetual and repetitive framing. Thank you. Uh, so, so Alex mentioned the sort of the international context. And since uh, Maricha, you're the only one right now who's outside of the US, uh, even though uh, Julie sometimes is. Can you talk about this from an international perspective, perhaps? Uh, I mean, that is, I think, you know, people particularly, I mean, most of the commentary is coming from the U.S. press and U.S. pundit 
class, uh, but but this has implications for around the world. Um, and while you and many, and actually probably everyone on this call has advocated for greater legislation and, and greater uh, government action, uh, as Alex says, that hasn't been forthcoming. And so the oversight board is sort of this second, third or fifth best solution uh, uh, to these problems. What Just from an international perspective, what would you uh, sort of want people to think about? Well, it couldn't be underlined more how important it is that Facebook is a globally operating company and that the, the harms that it causes by either intervening, for example, currently taking down critical posts against Indian government policy or not taking down other uh, evidently harmful posts, for example, by world leaders uh, in the Philippines, in Brazil, or elsewhere, previously in Myanmar, where genocide was essentially drummed up uh, on Facebook. And so I think it's really important to remember that Facebook has the choice, with or without its oversight board, to decide to draw stronger, principled, moral lines every day, and they've not done that. Uh, and it's probably out of business considerations or otherwise, but I think that that is uh, a painful lesson that could have been learned far before President Trump accounts take down, and uh, there will be more lessons to be learned. And I hope that the oversight board won't distract from the need to address those very significant harms uh, worldwide. And so what I see is um, a company with outsized power uh, where the oversight board has a limited mandate to address a limited set of cases, and it takes a long time to address them, which you know I understand there, there's input, there were thousands of comments uh, offered, and obviously deliberation takes time. Um, but for more systematic and also um, more principled, less arbitrary approach to the role of Facebook. Indeed, I've, I've made the case for um, democratically anchored, rule of law anchored methods that are truly independent of the company. And uh, sure, if you look to Washington, maybe that is not forthcoming. But if you look to Brussels, it is. Um, there is a Digital Services Act that is now uh, going through the legislative pipeline that seeks to spell out more clearly what the responsibilities and liabilities of companies, not just Facebook, thankfully also that one important video sharing platform called YouTube that has gotten away with a lot of harm, uh, not only around January 6th, but, but also more broadly conspiracy theories, anti-vaxxers and so on and so forth. So a systematic approach, I think, is, is incredibly uh, important where the public interest is leading and where it's not, uh, you know, in one way or another, also a PR exercise of a big tech platform. So what I hope is that with this individual case and with a sort of scorecard for what the oversight board has, you know, done well or, or has not done well or this you know, personal opinions about uh, this moment in time is that the systematic, large-scale, ongoing problem of harms shared uh, and, and spread from Facebook into the real world causing uh, death, polarization, and violence is not lost. Thank you. Now, uh, Daphne, uh, you've heard what Marietje said about uh, greater government intervention. You've talked about uh, uh, a little bit the, the sort of middle range solution that that comes up with the oversight board. What were your thoughts on on yesterday's decision? Well, so I thought that the board had a very, very thorny problem to solve, and they solved it rather elegantly. And the way that we can tell that the solution was elegant maybe is from today's Politico headline, Facebook's political nightmare deepens. <laughs> So, which is talking about Democrats and Republicans both being even more mad in the wake of the decision. 
So I have a couple of, I'm a lawyer, I have a couple of fairly lawyerly observations about the ruling. One is about this kind of intriguing mix of like part of the elegance of the solution is this, you know, Marbury moment of saying, uh, you only get to ask us the questions that you have properly teed up and we tell you how to tee up the questions. But then after being so particular and productively particular in that way, the opinion also gave in to the temptation to just throw out a whole bunch of recommendations on things that had not been teed up, where there was no you know, evidence in place, arguments had not been heard, um, and where maybe um, conventional wisdom deserves evidence and arguments. While it is tempting to do that, may, maybe there should be a limit to dicta. The other thing... So I, I'm going to be kind of a devil's advocate here, and this responds a little to, to what Alex was saying. And I really am being a devil's advocate, so please don't take this as, you know, Daphne came out and said companies should do X. But are they really supposed to ignore economic and political pressure? Like when they make a decision that will definitely cause a bunch of advertisers to go away and make them lose money, or definitely cause political backlash that will have consequences for them. Um, is, is the standard that they should so completely isolate content moderation questions from those other questions that they never consider those factors at all? Uh, and uh, on one level, this is, it's almost like a political philosophy question, you know, of when do we treat a platform like a private actor where and, you know, ideally we want them responsive to market forces. And when do we treat them more like a government held to human rights standard? And I, I think the answer really is somewhere in between. But so much of the scholarship and expertise and pressure, including from me, is over on that human rights side of the balance that I, I kind of would like to see more discussion about, you know, when and how companies are supposed to act like companies. Um, the practical version of that question is you know, about the decision-making process. Um, you know, they, the, the opinion says that we want people who know the local political context very well to make the decisions. Nonetheless, those are supposed to be people who are not at all influenced by the local political context. That might be, you know, a difficult spot in the Venn diagram to identify when you're hiring. Um, you know, similarly, no matter how you structure your organization, if you have all of your content moderators reporting into one senior vice president and all of your public policy government relations people reporting into another, if they want opposite things or are raising opposite considerations, then at the apex, which is the CEO, somebody's going to have to factor in both of those things at once. So I, I think it's just hard to get away from. And I would like in academic and civil society work to see more thinking about really how you reconcile those things rather than just going towards a human rights standard at, at, at every instance. And yeah, um, I, I will stop there because well, I, I know Nate was talking about human rights talk standards. About the, the human rights and I, I, I've got to be in my bonnet about the, the use of human rights, international human rights law here. And I'm, I'm itching to let that be out and, and will in a second. But I, I thought I'd give Michael and, and Julie an opportunity either to respond to, to what Daphne, what Daphne said in particular, I think is a good, is a good um, jumping off point, which is what kinds of considerations do you think are permissible for the company here? Um, um, does the sort of interest of the firm qua firm have a role to play in some of these, in factor into your decisions, let alone their content moderation decisions? Um, which of you would like to go first? I see Michael's. I'd be happy to, to yeah. go first. I, I think what Daphne said is quite 
insightful, but I also think the institutional structure that we have is right now is, is responsive to it. Uh, the, the company is a company. It's job is to make money. And that's not all bad because that means it will be responsive to its users. Uh, and that, and the users are people and, you know, there certainly are, are exceptions, but by and large, uh, the profit motive and the welfare and desires of its users are at least marching somewhat uh, in the same direction. The oversight board is completely the opposite. We don't care whether Facebook makes any money. We are completely uh, outside of that. And yet we are not all powerful with the company. We have, a, as, as uh, Marietta uh, uh, emphasize we have a limited role. We have a limited remit. We can only do certain things, right? And so that means we have both uh, sets of considerations. The company is going to be economic and the board is going to be non-economic, emphasizing human rights, of which, of course, human of, of freedom of expression is, uh, is, is uh, near the apex, right? And so um, uh, we are going to be nudging the company in one direction, but we, it's not as if, you know, that's just going to magically turn it into a, a, a system where economics is not uh, taken into consideration. That's still going to be, uh, we're nudging and they're making money. And I think the combination of those things may be better than all of one or all of the other. Uh, of course, I agree with uh, with Michael with regards to our you know limited remit, and of course we're not here to talk about the commercial interests of the company. Uh, while that is true, it's also true that the same company, uh, despite its huge commercial interest, has also committed itself voluntarily and announced you know with big blog, po blog posts. Sorry, a few weeks ago that it had. Uh, decided to break down basically what it meant for Facebook to be committed uh, by committed to human rights and and how how the company is going to apply that. Um, from my perspective, this is an interesting moment to to harness and to say yes in this in this world where we all know authoritarianism is rising, um, those actors that are supposed that are the primary responsible for applying and for protecting our, our human rights, those actors tend to become more authoritarian and shy away from protecting those rights. Well, uh, we all have a role to play, including companies and companies' role cannot be only making money. Uh, if they make money and they have an impact on society, how can they, also be a positive force for human rights. And I don't think it's incompatible with, with business interests. On the contrary, speaking here, not as a board member, but really as an activist, we have seen that human rights can be actually a competitive advantage for companies, especially when we're talking about the internet. We're not, well, it's the FSI, so we can probably talk also about the geopolitical forces that, in, that are involved. You know, there, there are other Facebooks or equivalents, or at least there are other big technologies that did not necessarily share, uh, I mean, do not necessarily conduct business with, you know, the, this idea that human rights are important and that human rights actually help you make money. That is a disruptive 
thinking. And I truly believe that a company in the 21st century, a company who puts that forward is likely, in my opinion, to make much more money and be perceived more positively in society, uh, provided that it contributes to that to that society. That, that's a very personal opinion, not speaking for the board here. But I wanted to rapidly uh, also um, respond to Alex's very, very important question. What are the trade-offs between, on the one hand, not letting the platform being weaponized, and on the other hand, not getting involved in the democratic processes. That's a balance, a very tough balance to, to strike. Uh, but again, what guides us, and I think what guides also all these democratic processes is a set of principles that at some point have been agreed upon by virtually everyone on earth. I say virtually because there are you know, some countries that are not agreed to many of the, the, text you're talk, the text we're talking about. So with this in mind, there are limits that you cannot pass. There are borders that you, we cannot pass precisely because of these, of these commitments that we all have, our countries and, 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 and humanity has committed uh, to respecting and particularly, of course, freedom of expression, but other sets of human rights. From that perspective, I think the board really has a role to play in reminding that, uh, well, these principles also apply on online platforms uh, and on online speech, which is not different from whatever happens offline now, but uh, it, it's as important to protect it uh, on social media platforms than it is to protect it in the different countries uh, where each government has jurisdiction. So yes, I just wanted to speak to that rapidly. Well, I'm, I'm itching to make the human rights point, but Mauricio wanted to jump in. Mauricio, what did you want to yeah, Very briefly. I mean, Michael said at the beginning that everybody is projecting their own views or, or uh, criticisms onto the ruling of the board. And I feel like the same is happening to the company Facebook. You know, in one context, people say, oh, it's a company, it's going to go after profit. In another context, people will say, well, it's a public square. Uh, they're clearly involved in making these decisions and trade-offs that are in the, in the realm of public policy. You know, when does speech uh, threaten public health, public safety, you know, uh, how far should the company look only in the United States or elsewhere, you know, which selection of cases does it make to prioritize, how much effort does it put into it, how many of its billions is it going to invest to be active in in different parts of the world, is it uh, mandated to create something that it itself has called a Supreme Court, which I think is, is laughable. So, uh, I think what we see happening is that these many hats that Facebook is trying to wear at the same time are increasingly clashing. And it leads to questions about whether the company is even capable of doing what it promises itself. So, for example, when it announced uh, after 14 years of, of not wishing to burn their fingers that it was finally going to deal with Holocaust denial, people would still find Holocaust denial uh, posts or groups or other content on the on the platform. So my my sense is that um, we have to indeed see the company for what it is: commercially driven, uh, data slurping, advertising selling, billion dollar company, and therefore not consider it legitimate or qualified to make those public policy decisions. But me, me though, I go. I feel like Marisha, uh, you're honestly you're contradicting yourself. Like in your opening statement, you talked about correctly, that Facebook has taken down content that protests against the Indian government. But then two sentences later, you talk about how there needs to be democratic accountability. The, this is the core of the problem, is that if you ask any of these tech companies, do you follow the law? They say yes. 
If you ask any of them, do you protect human rights? They say yes. And you can't do both of those, right? And the problem in India is that a properly democratically elected leader is using actual court systems to force Facebook to do things that are against human rights. And so I, this is why I like the oversight board model is that governments are not the solution. Um, and we always hear this from our European friends that assume that everything is going to happen in Brussels or Paris or Berlin. But even in the European context, we're going to see things like the Digital Services Act used by the EU members who are now trending towards autocracy. You know, we, we did a whole report on SIO about disinformation in the Polish election that looks like it was tied to one of the political parties. Um, we're going to see these European laws used in the exact same thing to suppress the rights of minority political speakers. And so, I, I mean, it's a the oversight board's a, a crappy model, but I don't see a better one. And I certainly don't think returning this all to democratic legitimacy in individual countries, we're seeing in India why that doesn't work now, unless we want to just say every country gets to make up their own rules, in which case you can get rid of the oversight board. And in the United States, it's the First Amendment. And in India, it's whatever the BJP wants. And I, I don't think that's actually a good model for anybody. But I, I just, I don't understand this position of the idea that government should take over at the same time that we criticize Facebook following the laws of government. Rich, I think yeah, I got to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Well, I will just be brief, but I don't think Facebook is following the laws of governments. I think they're following their own laws and their own selections of cases. And it's arbitrary. It's one thing one day. It's another thing the other day. And, you know, if they were to align their their uh, decisions with universal human rights or with uh, democratic principles or with the U.S. Constitution, I think that would already be clearer than what we see right now, where there's a lot of questions about, you know, how much priority is put into different countries, why, uh, for example, certain risks are taken, et cetera, et cetera. Because if you go into certain countries like let me take a, a random example, uh, a country where there is a history of election violence like Kenya, and you give a platform where people can use it at will to share their messages, hateful or not, true or not, it's going to have an effect. So I really don't think such a principled decision is taken by Facebook throughout. But, but could you respond just to Alex's point about India in particular? Because I think all of us do recognize that in some ways that is where the future of the Internet is going to be. Determined. Yeah. Uh, so what 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 what's the right response from Facebook and how does this make you think about democratic accountability and content moderation? Well, I think the question is what Facebook promises to do to its users. And so I think it's it's good if they don't just follow every every order to take down a post. And if they don't want to agree with laws that they're forced to agree to, then they have to ask themselves, do they want to operate in that country? It's a decision that tech companies have to make everywhere. You know, does Google want to start a search engine in, in China if it is forced to censor? Does Facebook want to go into Turkey when the constitution there does not allow insulting of the head of state? You know, these are, these are preconditions that have consequences indeed. And um, I think no country is perfect. The EU is not perfect. I'm not trying to uh, idealize the role of governments uh, in that sense. But I think that there is a big difference between democratic legitimacy and accountability versus commercially driven uh, motives without such independent processes. So I, I do want to use that as a launching pad for my, my screed a little bit on, on international human rights law as the touchstone here. Now, I, I just for Michael and Julie's benefit, I, I don't fault the oversight board for grounding its decision in international human rights law. After all, that's in your charter, right? So you're basically, you know, uh, directed to do so. Uh, and, and, and hey, you, you know, you look for law where you can find it. The problem I see is that, you know, most of international human rights law is not about, it, it's about 
you know, government suppression of individual speech, right, with, res with respect to uh, the, the free speech section we're talking about here. Um, and Facebook is not actually a government and, it's, and the newsfeed is not a public square. It is a highly curated, algorithmically driven, personalized servicing of information to uh, a user base, right? And that presents different considerations than does a government that then clamps down the speech of, a, of an individual speaker. Um, and, and so, for example, the, the decision that you all had on the um, on nudity and the uh, French breast cancer video that, that came out a few months ago seems perfectly plausible to me, as, as you all suggest, that the um, a government should not be able to ban breast cancer videos, right? I mean, that, that would violate international human rights laws. But for a company that's, that's looking at a billion pieces of content that are flowing over its platform every day, is it so crazy that they shouldn't be able to have a filter, you know, that says no nudity? Yes, it's going to limit some certain kinds of speech, but, you know, the, the concerns that the company has, and I'm not even talking about the economic questions that, that, that Daphne was referring to, but just that it's a different question, right? That this is not about, if you want to find nudity on the internet, there are plenty of places you can find it, right? You don't need to have to have Facebook as the place uh, to do that. And so while what, what is interesting in the opinion is, yes, most of the, the discussion of international human rights law is talking about the treaties relevant to government suppression of speech. There is the sections that start talking about the business, the guiding principles on businesses and human rights, but those principles really are not written for the content moderation problem, as you all know. And, and, and it is, in, in many ways, you all are giving content to the international human rights law relating to businesses and human rights. I mean, all, all of those sort of principles deal with, you know, how, how um, you know, the, the company should start, any company should think about the environment, should think about um, the abuse of its, of its consumers, uh, non-consumers, employees and the like. So I want to just sort of push you all to, to explain what role, whether you think that the international human rights precedent dealing with governments can be sort of adopted wholesale in the corporate context that you're uh, dealing with. Julie, why don't you start since, since um, uh, Michael started before? You will see in our decision, this is actually a conversation that uh, we've been having at the board, you know, how should we hold companies to the same standards, basically exactly uh, copy-pasted standards as governments, given that these are indeed just companies and they probably do not have the same means to protect the human rights and they have. And that's why we, we have suggested in some of our decisions, first of all, that um, the dichotomy take down or live up is probably not the only way out there um, when, we, when it comes to, to content. We've been having this conversation. We've been hinting to that in, in some of our decisions. Uh, and also, yes, we acknowledge that it's a we're talking about a company. So we are absolutely in an, an uncharted territory, but precisely because we are on this territory, uh, we are we are listening and, and yes, reading as much as, as possible on these issues. And, and that's why the public comments are, are very helpful because they, they provide additional uh, perspective that probably we, we, we might like, we may like internally. So this to say that it's a huge experiment indeed, uh, like uh, my other colleague, Ronaldo Lemos usually says, 
It's a very fascinating one, actually, in which we are trying to craft into paper what does it actually mean in 21st century when you have uh, at your disposal so many tools that did not exist 70 years ago, 100 years ago, when all these texts uh, were, were adopted. How do you actually translate that into uh yeah, into policies that work on, on social media platforms. And I think one of the ways is recognizing that, that, that the dichotomy leaving up, taken down in a matter of 24 hours, otherwise you'll be fine, so on and so forth, is probably not the best, always the best framework to look at things. It's, it's a bit more complicated than that. But I think we're, uh, we are at the beginning and I think the, the, the kind of dialogue and conversation we've been having with the companies uh, after we've provided it with recommendations. Uh, for instance, we've made rec some recommendations on automated content moderation, on, um, on uh, moderators adding more moderate human moderation. Well, company, the company responds to that. And I really like the idea that Alex uh, introduced earlier on, which is it's, it's a question that this conversation is an iteration. And uh, yes, it's important. It's open that it's important that it happens uh, in this open, open way. Michael, anything you'd like to add on the from the uh, in terms of the application of human rights law uh, in these contexts? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I don't think anybody thinks that the same standards apply to Facebook that apply to companies. I'm sorry, that apply to uh, to nations when they're exercising their you know punitive functions, locking people and and putting people in jail and, and so forth. But that doesn't mean that internet, that principles of freedom of expression recognized in international law and our first amendment and, and other, other sources don't have application. And if you look at this most recent opinion and see what were the principles of freedom of expression that were invoked I don't think this is a straitjacket. I think that, and I, I, so what were they? They, uh, one of them was clarity. That is, you know, lack of vagueness. Uh, another is uh, is understandability, uh, so that you know users know where they where they stand. And and this is related to you know not doing, not uh, applying new standards sort of on an ad hoc basis retroactively and one standard to Mr. Trump and another standard to, to other people, a consistency requirement also is, comes from both international uh, human rights law, uh, freedom of expression principles, and it's also a principle of freedom of expression uh, in, uh, uh, in the American free speech tradition too. And I could go on, I think, and, and the idea of proportionality, which is very similar, not identical, but very similar to the American uh, idea of narrow tailoring. These are not, I, I don't have any problem saying that they are applicable to Facebook, even though I just, I think it's, it would be crazy to say that, that the same standards always apply to uh, governments and, and Facebook. And, and, and let me just say one, one more thing. It's in some ways, Nate, you, you understate the problem because there's not only the question of comparing Facebook to governments, but what kind of governmental activity are we even comparing it to? Because it's one thing to say to somebody who's inciting a riot, 
uh, are, are we going to throw you in prison for six months for an overexcited speech, right? And we want to be very careful about that. It's something else to, to say that you can use, you know, government facilities to spread that speech. Well, maybe we maybe we unplug the uh, the equipment, right? And 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 in U.S. law, at least, you know, the U.S. First Amendment law, we distinguish between the different capacities in which the government touches. Uh, speech. So, you know, throwing people in jail is one thing, not funding them is something else, keeping them out of a public forum. Uh, there are all kinds of limited public forums would have, which, you know, provide for a reasonable content neutral, or at least viewpoint neutral uh, rules. There, I think we need to be sensitive to the way in which uh, what Facebook does is analogous to a number of what I would call non-coercive uh, government uh, interactions with, with speech. And there, I think the analogies are often going to be quite valuable. I, I want to turn to Daphne on that, I'll, but let me just add to those. Different, I, I was specifically referencing the fact that the character of the product itself, newsfeed and the, the, the role that algorithms play in the ordering of information makes it qualitatively different than the Boston Commons, right? Where you are, you are regulating people. I'll, I'll go on that a little bit, but Daphne, yeah, you wanted to, to jump in here. Yeah, well, so I started thinking of a question listening to, um, to Julie's and, and Michael's points, which is, it, it seems like maybe the, the government-esque human rights standards um, that you're holding Facebook to are mostly the kinds of st standards we would apply to a legislature of like, how clear must the rules be? Um, and that stands in contrast, I think, to the point Nate was making about automated, um, well, automation and defining what you see, but also automated decision-making, which mm -hmm. is sort of an unavoidable part of how platforms decide what to take down or what to demote. You know, they're doing something that would never qualify as due process or fair process in any court in the, in the world. Um, and, and I think that's unavoidable. Um, and, you know, we can nudge them towards something that's fairer and that's better, but it's, it's not going to get to where anybody expects courts to be. Um, and so I, I wonder how you think about that big picture, but also whether it's a useful distinction to say this is more like the human rights standards we put on legislatures rather than the ones we put on courts. Julie, did you? I, I do think that that point about how the oversight board's rules can be implemented at scale with filtering is one of the sort of undiscussed things in the oversight board's decisions, frankly, you know, that and, and that that is really, really where the rubber meets the road. And at some point, you're, you're, you're going to knock your head against that. And, and that is really what's going to make this quite different than the, uh, you know, government, government rules, because the, the Facebook is in the business of prior restraints, right, which, which is not usually the way we think of uh, how we should think about a lot of these speech rules. So Julie, did you want to jump in? Yes, just rapidly. Um, we are putting together a monitoring committee precisely to track the implementation of many of the recommendations that we make, including related to automated content moderation. And I think this, this monitoring process is extremely important uh, because it can still with this idea that we try and by trying we'll see actually where we can, we can get. With this process, we can you know, start having answers uh, it is true what the board uh, is doing so far has never been done before. So it's mostly guide, guidance based on 
you know, an interpretation of what this human rights standards could actually, how this standard could translate into concretely, technically, into how the company conducts business of content moderation. Uh, but I think with this committee, what we want to do is, yes, monitor, also pay attention to the implementability of whatever recommendations and the, the, the decisions that we that we make. And I think this, again, this, this dialogue is going to be really, uh, uh, yeah, fascinating from, from my perspective. Sure, Alex, you wanted to jump in on the algorithm issue and, and sort of automated content moderation maybe? Yeah, so on, on the algorithm ranking, I think like one of the things that drives me nuts is like everybody loves to talk about algorithms, but this is actually a great example of a situation in which algorithms are pretty much irrelevant in that the problem with Donald Trump is not that a computer at Facebook is deciding to put it in front of people. It's that tens and tens and tens of millions of Americans decided they wanted to see everything. They intentionally opted in into seeing what he said. And then everything he said would be amplified by their people, both for positive and negative purposes. So this is actually a great example of the non-algorithmically driven issues, which is kind of consistent with what Renee and I found with our election work, which is a lot, there's a lot more humans deciding to make things big who have large followings and people who exercise their, their, their free association rights to be associated with those people and to opt into those kind of information sharing regimes, whether they're groups or following people and such, but in doing so are also choosing to be fooled, right? Um, and that's, I think like there, there are issues that difficult algorithmic issues that oversight board is going to have to deal with, but it's not this one. I agree. I agree with that that point on the um, that with respect to algorithms in this one. But I do think that uh, uh, this is a larger point about international human rights standards and whether um, you can operationalize them at scale with automation. <laughs> you no, know? and I, I think that's totally right. I mean, yeah. th that's the other thing we got to keep in mind in all this stuff that is kind of weird is that. There's, there's not like a lot of parts of the American criminal justice system that aren't important, right? Like every defendant thinks their case is important, right? But the truth is, is you know, there are billions and billions of automated decisions made every quarter by Facebook that are not controversial at all, and only a tiny number are controversial. And I find this actually to be a really interesting thing that what happens to the oversight board when they theoretically have a view over all of it, but only 0.001% should of be of interest and like how that filtering works to get to that level without the existence of the magistrate and the circuit courts and the court of appeals and all the things that exist in the US or in other court systems will be really interesting. Renee, you actually, I think, had a question on that point, which is just on the process of uh, the oversight board uh, adjudicating those comments or listening to them. Yeah, I am very curious about that. The question about, I started reading through the PDF that the board released of the user user. Uh, submitted comments, and I was curious what that process was like for members of the board who were doing the deciding, you know, to what extent that public opinion is is incorporated into the deliberation process. Michael, do you want to just talk about how the comments you know, were? So did you read all 9,600? I, I, I didn't even come comments? close. Uh, so, uh, and to some extent, I relied on staff to point out the ones that were worth reading. And, and I want to say, I don't, I bet different members of the board have a different attitude. And that's one reason why we, why it's good to have so many very different individuals on the board. But my attitude is I don't care how many people say things. I care about what they say and whether, whether it's cogent and sensible and, and, and reasonable. And so, uh, you know, there were some public comments that I found extremely valuable and others, you know, having, you know, many thousands of people just saying how much they hate Donald Trump is just not useful. 
Julie, do you want to weigh in on how you dealt with the comments? And that basically, this also affects us going forward. How how much how <laughs> should we be in sending you know sending you comments versus publishing a law review article? Yeah. No, no, they are red. I, I promise they're red. I have to admit also that I couldn't really read every piece of comment. Uh, we had more than 300 pages, I think, on that PDF, close to 400. I read half, so I'm, I'm quite proud of that. But um, we have an incredible staff that does the work of uh, receiving the comments as they come and summarizing or reading them and summarizing the main points uh, that could, you know, well, first of all, putting aside those that are not consistent with what, what they say and, and uh, do not bring anything to the debate, but also uh, putting aside those that do have very um, um, detailed and, and uh, coherent uh, reasoning. So um, once we have that summary available, we also have the PDF, so we can still you know go back to that document, but we do have uh, a summary to help us given the, the time constraints. So in addition to how you deal with comments, uh, there was, I thought, you know, an interesting revelation in this uh, decision about how you interact with Facebook, right? Which also makes it quite different than a court in that you at, there's this dialogue between you and Facebook throughout the adjudication, right? I mean, Michael, when you were a, a judge, this is, this would be a kind of a different process, I would think, where where you, you frequently would go back and forth. And so, what was interesting, I thought, is not only did you ask right the certain questions, but Facebook declined to answer some of them. Um, you articulate the reasons in the well, in a general way, you articulate the reasons for their denial of sort of cooperation with you all. Uh, and so, going forward, I think Facebook is on notice that if they don't answer that they that that will be noted. Now, I don't know whether that makes them more or less likely to cooperate. I could see Facebook, you know, um, um, going in a more restrictive direction as a result of this. But but on the kind of transparency front, will in the future, will you make available, you know, to the public the questions that you ask Facebook and their responses? Assuming it doesn't violate user privacy and some other things, there's obviously some legal legal issues there. But it would seem kind of important in establishing the independence of the board that that system of asking questions to Facebook and then Facebook responding might be something that we, you know, would know because then, then we, it, it, in a sense, it, it's part of the record, right? It's part of what may have influenced the outcome in the case. So is that something that you all are, are thinking about? Maybe I'll start, I'll go to Michael as, as board chair on this. I think it's something we should think about. I actually don't think it's anything we have been thinking about that's it's a good it's a good thought. I think this was the first case in which I may be wrong about that, but I think it's the first case where Facebook declined to answer questions. Now part of that is we asked so many questions in this case. There have been other cases where we ask questions, but you know the number is considerably smaller. Uh, so it, it may be that this this particular case call, calls attention to an interesting, I mean, I think what you said makes a lot of sense, but, but in, until this case, I don't think that would have been apparent. 
Uh, who was, was Daphne? Daphne uh, yeah, in. I would just jump in and say, I love that you're asking all those questions, even if they don't answer them, just that the board is staking out that it has the authority to ask those questions and hopefully defining a dynamic with Facebook that, that makes you get more information. So keep up the good work. <laughs> Well, what was interesting is, is that, oh, so go, Julie, go on. No, I just wanted to say, yes, to, to Daphne's point, um, I am confident that this is going to help us get even more information because I do remember, Michael, some instances in which we didn't get response at the time, but we got response in another way, in other cases. So I, these questions that we ask are important to inform our decisions. So, and I think Hopefully the company understands that. So yeah, I'm personally very confident that it's going to help us uh, have more information with regards to moderation at Facebook. I mean, what I found interesting is not, not only, you know, what they responded to, what they didn't, but also the rationales for not responding, right? So that, that of course, attorney-client privilege, we can kind of understand privacy if, if that's really an issue, although I suppose you all have signed NDAs on the privacy issues. So, so I'm not, not sure I understand that. Uh, then relevance, right? That they decided, well, the, the questions were not relevant to adjudicating the, the Trump case, which would seem to be a pretty important catch-all. But what's developing here is a kind of common law of evidence, right? That is going to apply, I mean, I mean, which is enforced by the company. So, you know, whether it's law or not, you can decide. But, but in terms of what are going to be reasonable uh, requests from the board that Facebook will then uh, respond to. I gather, though, that that your the bottom line, Michael, is that you felt that in the previous cases and in this case, they pretty much gave the board the information that they needed and wanted. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, As you say on that, Nate, like the thing I'd love to see more asking for is without violating privacy. I think there's a fascinating law professor argument here of whether or not uh, showing user data to Michael or Julie would be a violation of ECPA, SCA, or GDPR. I'm sure we, uh, somebody here could write 150 pages on that, but without getting access to real individual, like row level user data, um, there are groups inside of Facebook that do lots of data science and then come up with conclusions. Um, one of those reports leaked to BuzzFeed about January 6th. And that's exactly the kind of thing that I think it would be great for the board to ask more for is I would like a quantitative analysis of how did this product affordance impact this and then for that to be released. Because the, realistically, there's no reason why that report should not have been released by Facebook in the first place, except internal politics. It would be great if the internal, if the oversight board or our forcing function for Facebook would be tr more transparent on that stuff. And then you don't have to expose individual user data and therefore run it uh, into the thicket of privacy laws. Great. Let me ask one last question about what the, the future holds here a little bit. Right now, I, I, I want to ask this both with respect to the Trump case itself, but then also institutionally for the oversight board. Is it right to read the opinion as suggesting that under any circumstances, Facebook has to come back to you in six months? Or is it possible, suppose they decide to reinstate Donald Trump in, well, actually even tomorrow, then is it basically the, the possibility that you know, is it within their own possibility that then it's going to require a user to file some kind of action about why that per why he, the account should be taken down in order for this to go back up to uh, you all, or or what's the procedure there? So uh, we didn't. They're not reporting back to us. They're just deciding this case again the way they should have originally, and it'll come back to us only if it. Uh, is raised through one of the ordinary channels, which would be Facebook referral, user appeal, or a third-party 
appeal. If if they leave Trump up, third parties can then appeal. So I, you know, I think the, those paths are very probable, but one of them will have to be followed. Now, let me ask a little bit organizationally about what the um, oversight board, the, the future is. Are you, do you have a full complement of members now, or are you, are you now in the business of pointing more? I know our colleague Pam Carlin had to, had to jump off because she's serving in the uh, Biden administration. So Suzanne Nossel of um, PEN America took her place. But um, are you are you still uh, building it out? And what what does the next year or two look like from the oversight board sort of organizational standpoint? Uh, the plan is to move toward a complement of forty. And the main reason we want more people is so we can have more panels and decide more cases. And how many are there right now? I forget. Is it 20? 20. 20. Okay. All right. And 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 if, is what role, if any, is Facebook playing in the selection of, of those? Is this all you all now who are deciding it? Uh, no, under the under the original charter, Facebook has a role with respect to all of the initial members. And then once once we're talking about replacements, uh, they no longer have a role. Well, I want to thank everybody uh, on this panel, uh, Michael and Julie. I know that you are um, <laughs> you, you, you're doing a, a roadshow uh, after this um, decision yesterday, and I'd say, Michael, as a former judge, I know that's an unfamiliar uh, position for you. <laughs> uh, and thank you to all my Cyber Policy Center colleagues. Uh, you really showed off well for for the rest of the world here uh, and what we can produce. Next up, we're going to hear reactions to the Oversight Board decision from two keen observers of the board, including Aaron Shields, a national field organizer at Media Justice, a grassroots movement for a more just and participatory media that fights for racial, economic, and gender justice in the digital age, and Katie Glenn Bass, the research director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. I spoke to Aaron and Katie on the day after the Oversight Board decision to get their reactions, which in some ways contrast from what we heard on the panel. Here's Katie and Aaron. Hi, I'm Katie Glenn Bass. I am the research director at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Hi, yeah, I'm Aaron Shields. I am a national field organizer with Media Justice. We're a national organizing and advocacy hub that fights for the digital rights of poor people and people of color. So this week, the Facebook Oversight Board delivered its much uh, waited for, uh, much anticipated, you know, decision on the curious case of of Donald J. Trump. Um, What were your first reactions, Katie? Uh, I was surprised. I had expected them to issue an up or down decision. Either you have to let him back on or you have to kick him off permanently. They've put down some interesting messages for Facebook in terms of what they believe their role to be and what they intend to do in terms of future interactions with Facebook on these cases. So it's a, it's a much longer and meatier decision than I had expected. How about you, Erin? Yeah, similarly, I was surprised. Similarly to Katie, I thought it was going to be an up and down decision. And I also was a little 
dare I say, annoyed that we, you know, spent, what is it, five months or so waiting for them to essentially kick the can back to Facebook. So I was a little bothered by that, but I was happy to see that Facebook affirmed that, or the oversight board rather, affirmed that Facebook made the right decision in suspending and removing the content from former President Trump, um, which we knew was the case all along. Media justice has been calling for Trump to be banned for a long time, not just because of the actions of January 6th and all of the rhetoric that helped flame and sort of incite that, but for previous, you know, hateful comments and his behavior on the platform prior to that. So we were happy to see that, but just a little concerned about where that leads us when it comes to, are we going to have to wait? another six months to actually get a permanent ban? Or will they wait until this sort of fizzles out of everybody's mind and then, you know, sort of roll back their decisions? We're just kind of waiting to see and also, you know, pushing Facebook on making that decision quickly and and publicly. Katie, I want to ask you a couple questions about the the submission that, that Knight did uh, before you were one of the 9,000 odd commenters and submitted a particular proposal to Facebook, which I saw somewhat represented in the oversight board's decision. Do you, do you think that's true in some way? In some ways. So we had also recommended that they, that they not decide whether or not he should be allowed back on the platform, but our condition was different. So what the board has done here is say, we're not going to make this decision. You need to come up with a clear and consistent policy and then apply it to him. What we had said was, you shouldn't make this decision. You should tell Facebook they have to commission an independent investigation, and independent is important there, into the role the platform and your design decisions and your policies may have played in facilitating what happened on January 6th. And after Facebook has done that study and published it, then we'll take up this question. Um, We were basically arguing that Facebook is trying to turn its massive problems with its platform into a simple yes or no as to whether one person gets allowed back on the platform or not. And what's more, they're trying to kick it off into this supposedly independent board that they've created and make them make the decision. So it doesn't even have to be Facebook saying we made it. And what we were saying to the oversight board is you shouldn't allow yourselves to be played in this way, essentially. Aaron, you mentioned that, you know, media justice has been calling for uh, action against Trump's account uh, in past. I mean, I assume that has to do with seeming call to to violence about the protests against police and uh, and racial injustice last summer. Um, Were there other things that you were kind of looking to in that regard? That and other concerns. So like, here's our thing. I'm going to like level with you here. We've been concerned about the Facebook Oversight Board and the like uptake of this particular issue. And we engaged because obviously there's gonna be a lot of media around it. Facebook is gonna be using this to push narratives around how they're advancing this idea of free expression and, and all of these sorts of things. What we don't want is to continue the spectacle of Trump and also recognize that there are still other people who are with very wide platforms and networks that are pushing out hate speech, disinformation, um, misinformation and disinformation about vaccines, like all these sorts of things on Facebook's platforms, multiple platforms, not even just the Facebook platform, but on Instagram and through WhatsApp and all of these things. And so we're really like looking to move on from this. What we want to see is 
really decisive action from Facebook. Facebook, we believe, has all the information that it needs to take to make a decision. And that includes not only the actions that happened around January 6th, but other actions prior to that. We saw this as sort of, yeah, Facebook trying to push off its responsibility onto this board that we're supposed to believe is independent. And that's not a strike against the people that are on the board, but more so of the all-encompassing way that Facebook likes to bring in experts and sort of distort their their work and expertise to benefit Facebook's reputation publicly. And so we didn't really want to play into that too much. Moving forward, like I said, we're really looking to see Facebook make this decision itself. And really what we've been doing, honestly, has been calling into question the leadership of Facebook. I think a lot of our, we've been working, campaigning against working with Facebook for many years now. And sort of where it's led us to believe is that, you know, Facebook really reacts and responds when there's like public pressure and spectacle for as many years as we've been working with them. And to see some of their moves, it just doesn't seem like it's in good faith to us. And so for us at Media Justice, we're actually looking to see some like institutional changes at the top, because we really don't feel like we're going to get the changes that we need until we have, you know, folks in you know, executive level positions who are really willing to take this seriously and take it as more than just like, you know, a PR thing or Facebook is getting bad press. And so we're going to act or look accommodating or like we are taking this seriously. I think if Facebook took it seriously, they would have addressed a lot of the stop the steal content prior to January 6th. They were aware of it, but it actually makes me think, I don't know if either of you were on to to their, um, the, the, the Facebook oversight board's stakeholder meeting. But they actually said that I think the oversight board asked Facebook, the company, something close to 70 questions and Facebook outright uh, declined to answer, I think, around 10 of them, seven or I think seven is the actual number. And one of the questions that they refused to answer was how stop the steal, you know, hashtag stop the steal content was actually amplified by the platform. They refused outright to answer that. And I really feel like that's incredibly telling. And so we want to dig into those points. Like it's clear that, you know, that's a pain point for them. And I think it's really telling in their role in everything that happened on January 6th. And even, you know, before that, beyond that, I'm sure there'll be something in the future, but I think that's sort of like where we need to be drilling down and digging in. Those are really good points. And I was wondering if I could add a little bit to some of what Aaron has pointed out. So so one thing in terms of the involvement in Stop the Steal, um, I think that's right. And I think this really underscores a recurring issue at Facebook. So I've never seen them step forward to take responsibility before they've been hit for it in the media. So after the 2016 election, Mark Zuckerberg first comes out saying, I think it's pretty crazy to think that Facebook played any role in this. Only after mountains of evidence emerge later, does he admit that maybe there was a problem with the platform. After Stop the Steal, Sheryl Sandberg first comes out saying, you know, this was organized by platforms that don't have the kind of safeguards or abilities that we have to check this stuff. Later, it turns out quite a lot of it was actually organized on Facebook. And then even going further than that, um, as you all may have seen, BuzzFeed published a piece 
last week, I think, where they had um, heard about an internal report that Facebook had done, an internal investigation, which is not the same as an independent investigation, but an internal report they had done looking at Stop the Steal and looking at places where they missed the mark or didn't do what they should have done and how effective their measures were. So not only do they know that there was a problem there, after BuzzFeed reported on it, they pulled down the internal report off their internal employee messaging board. So they won't even stand behind their own internal investigations, which just highlights the fact that there's there's even more need for further pushback and pressure on them beyond just this, this one Trump spectacle, as Aaron put it. Um, and then another thing that she mentioned that I wanted to underscore is... Um, you know, the board and the board's mandate, which is a problem that we raised in the Knight Institute submission here. So the board itself, the people on the board are good, smart people. I think they they need to do a better job representing the global south in some particular categories of people, but they're smart people. Um, they're thoughtful people, but they've been given a mandate that prevents them from looking into the really critical questions about Facebook and what should happen on Facebook. They've been told you can only make decisions on cases where people have appealed a particular piece of content that's been taken down. Now they've slightly expanded their mandate to include decisions to leave up certain pieces of content. You can appeal those too. Or you can look at cases that Facebook directly refers to the board, which is what they did in the Trump case. But they're not allowed to look at the algorithmic amplification. They're not allowed to look at the way Facebook decides which users get recommended to which groups. And in fact, as Erin noted, when the board asked them questions about that, they simply declined to answer. That's a real fault with the way the board has been set up. I mean, it's, it's a fault in my view. In Facebook's view, it's by design. They didn't want them to be able to look at this. But these are the kinds of things that, you know, the board is obviously chafing at these restrictions. And the fact that they noted that Facebook refused to answer those questions is significant. But they don't really have the independent power to compel Facebook to do more, to, to answer those questions, let alone to do an independent investigation. They can make non-binding recommendations, but that's all. Those, uh, it was 46 questions uh, that, that the board sent to Facebook. And then, uh, as Aaron said, I think roughly seven that they, they outright refused to answer or partially did not answer. And those were you know, questions about how Facebook's newsfeed uh, and other features impacted the visibility of the, the content from Trump that was deemed to violate their terms whether Facebook had researched or planned to research the design its design decisions uh, in relation to January 6th, information about violating content from followers of, of Mr. Trump's account. So, you know, really, it was almost like they were going for the crown jewels. They wanted a network analysis. They wanted to know what Facebook had done to really understand its own role in this or particularly damaging event. Yeah, I think that's right. But Facebook's response was, that's not information you need to know. On some level, uh, this is also information that Congress might seek if, in fact, there's ever a national commission and if, in fact, there is a, uh, a subpoena process. I would certainly hope so. In the past, when we've seen, you know, some of these platform CEOs go up to testify and speak in front of Congress in some of these committees, we've seen that sometimes congressional members are a bit behind on their understanding of platforms, you know, asking how platforms make money and like why they're not seeing certain email or why their constituents aren't seeing certain emails, all these sorts of like off base questions. I'm, I feel a little more, a more positive outlook after some of the more recent uh, hearings that, you know, congressional members are becoming a little bit more savvy and understanding what to ask for and also partnering with groups like ours 
and other advocates to really figure out which questions to ask to make sure that you're getting to the to the root of you know why this is happening. I think we heard a lot about you know algorithms and amplification at the most recent hearing. I think it was a, a judiciary hearing, which I was really happy to see. Um, and so I think as we move forward and we start hearing more about regulation or just having congressional members hold you know, tech CEOs feet to the fire and using their bully pulpit more, that they'll be asking those more pointed questions. Um, and really what I would love to see is, you know, them really being able to call them on their non-answers and bad answers in real time so that we can actually, you know, move forward with something or have, you know, leave a hearing with more information than we had going in. Katie, you had called for that independent investigation. Um, I believe there have been uh, at least one or more independent investigations. Um, there was a human rights investigation around uh, Myanmar. You know, did you have something in mind for that specifically around January 6th or how that would work? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think multiple investigations would be good, including one led by Congress. But what we had in mind here was actually something that would compel Facebook to give researchers, independent researchers, more access to its platforms data, which has been a recurring issue with Facebook as well. So they don't like to let researchers see the kinds of data that they would need to do studies of social media platforms and how speech travels on social media. Um, and in this case, what we were stressing is that any sort of an independent investigation that happens needs to include people with the technological expertise to really know what they're looking at. So the reason we didn't recommend that the board demand to see Facebook's algorithms um, or something like that is because the board is not going to know what they're looking at if you show them the code. But there are people who would know what they were looking at and would know what to look for on the platform. But that's going to require Facebook to open itself up much more than it has wanted to do in the past. The Knight Institute has a sort of separate long-term conversation going with Facebook over amending its terms of service to allow for more public interest research to happen on the platform. Because right now, any sort of scraping of publicly available data on Facebook or the use of temporary research accounts to do research on the platform are considered violations of its terms of service. Um, and therefore, technically, the researcher could be held liable under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which bans violations of terms of service as a crime. I wanted to ask just in the few minutes we've got left about how this decision and the way it played out kind of changes the, I guess, the atmosphere around Facebook, around the the kind of question of the oversight board, the question of accountability or potential regulation around Facebook, or even the, even the kind of atmosphere around activism. Yeah, honestly, it feels like a neutral to negative change, and I'll say why. So- Originally, when we would campaign against and in collaboration with, you know, other groups against Facebook, we were dealing directly with the company and we were holding the executives who are making those decisions accountable directly for their decisions, right? And to us, this like propping up of this oversight board felt like a diversion from that. So don't hold us accountable for our actions, for our decisions, for the way that we're making policy or not making policy. We're actually just going to defer that for five, three, whatever months um, over to this board. And then you can send your, you know, we've established this board of experts who are 
um, you know, deliberating around these decisions and whatever they decide, you can take your gripe up with them. We can't, you know, what can we do? We, you know, this is the, this is an independent board, even though the board came back with a decision that we think is favorable, that affirms what we had said before, and also itself pushed the decision back onto Facebook. How long did this take? What organizing energy was, you know, expended in order to publicize this to make sure that Facebook um, wasn't able to use this as a way to get out of their responsibilities around this? And so moving forward, we're not interested necessarily in engaging with the board in a way that further legitimizes their existence. And we may, me and Katie may diverge on this issue because I think that this is like a, as advocates, we're just like really fed up (laughs) with Facebook and the way that they've been engaging. What this decision does do is gives us the opportunity to again, push Facebook to do what we've been asking them to do, which is deliver a permanent ban based on not just, like I said, not just the, the, the actions, the posts, the content that went up around January 6th, but even previous things, previous attacks on communities of colors, on Muslim people, undocumented people, all of these groups that have a lot of hate and terror directed towards them because of the words of essentially our federal government being amplified over and over again, right? I put this in my in my statement that we put out about changing the ways that political figures are handled on these platforms uh, for a long time and perhaps even still political figures, government figures were given a lot of leeway and actually had the like the content policies were um, less restrictive to them. And again, what we've been saying for a long time and what Change the Terms has been said, which is, a I don't know if folks are familiar with Change the Terms, group that does um, a coalition that does work on uh, content moderation. But we've been saying that that's like, actually what should be happening is the reverse, right? So that people who have massive platforms and have institutional power at their disposal should be held to a higher standard when it comes to the content that they're putting out and having it amplified on platforms and not a lower one. And not because it's newsworthy, not because they're a government official, precisely for those reasons, what they say should actually be monitored and held to a higher standard. And that's not just in the US, that's across the globe actually too. When actually, I do think that the US sets a standard because of our ability to sort of like, you know, the institutions are based here and any regulator that would have any opinion about this is based in the U.S. And so it's important for us to consider that what happens here in the U.S. also affects people abroad. And so we want to make sure that when we're pushing for these policy changes, we're not just considering what's happening in the U.S. context, but also globally. Katie? I mean, as of right now, I'm not sure the decision changes much at all because we've yet to see what Facebook is going to do in response. You know, the the board has now made its supposedly binding binding decision on the Trump case. And they've also made a bunch of non-binding recommendations that Facebook has to reply to and indicate whether or not it's going to take up. But the fact remains that at any point, Facebook could just say, you know what, this was a mistake. We shouldn't have done this. The board is disbanded. And they might take a minor PR hit for a day or two over that, but it really wouldn't be much. And they know that. And so I, you know, I, I'm skeptical of what capacity the board has to 
really hold them accountable. You know, in the board's decision, one thing that I think the board's early decisions have been good for is highlighting how wildly inconsistent Facebook is and implying its own existing policies. So highlighting things like the incoherence of the newsworthiness standard that Facebook has tried to implement and how that applies to political leaders, as Aaron was referencing, you know, highlighting even just basic things that are so basic and so shocking when you realize um, they're not in place already. So before the Trump decision came out, they issued a decision related to India to a video that was critical of Narendra Modi that was pulled down. Um, And one of their recommendations was, you should probably translate the Facebook community standards into Punjabi, which is one of those things where you're like, well, wait a minute, the community standards aren't available in Punjabi already. And so, you know, they're at, at those sort of basic low hanging fruit things. I think the oversight board can do some good, but um, there's a whole range of other issues. They're not going to be able to touch. One thing that I found interesting in the decision on Trump, which I, I, assume was intentional, although I can't be sure, is that ruling basically lays the foundation for a rationale for Facebook to issue a permanent ban. They have basically made the case that he has violated the standards so many times. And also that in order to let him back on, he would have to disavow things that he's obviously not going to disavow, like all of the lies about the election. They they have made it very easy for Facebook if they want to, to essentially just adopt that framework and say, here's what we think. So I think that was probably, they probably meant it that way. You know, I, I read it the same way. And I think um, you know, it does increase the likelihood that uh, Facebook may rip the Band-Aid off and just go ahead and, and suspend Trump, uh, possibly indefinitely or, or, or uh, forever. I suppose we'll see. I mean, on some level, it has now been kicked back to those senior executives, Aaron, that you're concerned about, um, you know, it, it'll be on some level, I'm sure, Mark Zuckerberg and, and Nick Clegg who will make this decision. We'll see. I'm trying to remain optimistic. Again, I feel slightly jaded because I've just been doing this for so long and interacting with the company for so long. I'm hoping that they'll see the actions that happened in places like Twitter, where there was slight uproar for like two days. And then everyone's like, oh, things can be normal here. We don't have to, you know, worry about somebody, you know, tweeting out video. Like we just, we just don't have to worry about hate speech at that level and that volume on the platform or like constantly monitoring what Trump is doing on the platform. And I think we could see something similar like that from Facebook. I'm not sure what they're hanging on to by continuing to drag this process along. Um, That would be my question for them. I'm interested to see, I'm hoping that they'll make the decision well before the six month mark based on what you all were just talking about, this framework that's been laid out. I don't think it's going to take six months. And I think they'll also see a lot of increasing pressure from the advocacy community if it does, you know, seem that it's going to be dragged out longer and longer. So we'll see what happens, but I'll say that I am, yeah, neutral to slightly optimistic about what will happen. We'll see. Katie, I'll put the last question uh, to you just in terms of the um, overall kind of discourse around speech and the First Amendment and content moderation in terms of the reactions that you're seeing out there from different parts of the political spectrum, you know, as the First Amendment Institute. What do you think, uh, if anything, this does to kind of change the dialogue, the political dialogue in the United States around speech issues? Uh, Not much, because I think the way the First Amendment is already represented in these conversations is um, 
intentionally distorted. I mean, I, you know, the, the reactions that we've seen mainly from the right, uh, that this is somehow violating the first amendment to not let him back on the platform. I mean, these people know that's not true. The first amendment restricts government action. Moreover, Facebook and all these other platforms have their own first amendment rights to decide who does and doesn't get onto their platform. They know that, but it's convenient cudgel to say that these platforms are violating the first amendment. You know, interestingly, it seems like we're converging on the need for more regulation. We don't know, there's no convergence on what that regulation should be or how we get there. But the fact that the GOP, which usually is pro-business and, you know, economic liberty or however you want to put it, is now calling to break up the tech companies um, or to regulate them in greater ways. That's something I wouldn't necessarily have expected a few years ago. And I, I wonder what potential it may open. Well, I thank you both for talking to me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.